0: church. Our passage this morning will be Psalm 27. Next week we'll start our next series, which will be um, preaching through 2 Corinthians, so that's where we'll be going next. Um, But I thought having New Year's Eve on a Sunday was too good an opportunity to waste, and so um, I've selected this psalm as just some thoughts and reflections on our new year as we prepare for celebrating that tonight, and um, hopefully some thoughts that will help uh, shape our preparation for the year and guide our time in it. So that's our goal with um, Psalm 27 this morning. <clears throat> so would you join me in prayer as we open the word together? Father, thank you so much for this day. Thank you for the chance to gather and worship. Thanks to you for such a wonderful time of just reflecting on your character and of our need for you and the fact that you are the one thing in this life and in this world that will satisfy perfectly. And so we're just grateful for that time and and grateful that you have revealed yourself to us in such a way that we can know you and that you have met that deepest need that we have. Father, we thank you for your word. Um, Every day we are more grateful for the truth that you have embedded in it and for the way that you speak to us through it. And Lord, as we turn our attention toward a new year, we are immeasurably grateful for what you've done here over the past year. Father, nothing that's happened here could have been done apart from your strength and your empowerment, and so we do give you the glory for what has been accomplished this year. And as we look forward to the next, we entrust it into your care, knowing that as you have provided for us in the past, you will provide for us in the future. And we look forward to see the way that you will grow and stretch and strengthen us in the year to come. And Father, help us to be faithful. Help us not to be found distracted or focused on other things, but help us to be found focused on you and seeking to walk more closely with you. So we pray for all of that as we open your word tonight, or today, in Jesus' name, amen. I spent all of Christmas Eve getting in the habit of saying tonight. Now now I have to get back into good morning and this morning. So, well, one of my uh, favorite hymns, and one that's probably familiar to many of you as well, is the hymn, Nearer My God to Thee, Nearer My God to Thee. It's a, it's a popular hymn. It was composed in 1841 by an English Unitarian minister, and although her theology was bad, um, her hymn writing was good, and so we can still sing um, the words of that hymn today, and, and they mean a lot to us. But perhaps the most famous time that that hymn was played was on the deck of the Titanic. And so although there's not too many eyewitnesses to that event, those who did survive the sinking of the Titanic testified that the band that was on the deck of the Titanic played the hymn, Nearer My God to Thee, As the Titanic Sunk. And so, um, George Orrell was a band leader on one of the ships that came to rescue some of the survivors from the Titanic, and he recorded some eyewitness accounts, and this was his summary. The ship's band, in any emergency, is expected to play in such a way as to calm its passengers. After the Titanic struck the iceberg, the band began playing bright music, dance music and comic songs, anything That would prevent the passengers from becoming panic-stricken. The ship was so badly holed that it was soon obvious disaster was ahead. And then various awe-stricken passengers began to think of the death that awaited them. And they asked the bandmaster to play hymns instead. The one which appealed to all was nearer, my God, to thee. The band leader was a man named William Hartley. And he was 33 years old when the Titanic sunk. And we have a record from his journal... That, that hymn was also a personal favorite of his as well. But that idea is as you face death um, and you prepare to meet your Maker, you want to think about being close to the Lord. Nearer, my God, to thee is our prayer as we approach those times. And in Psalm 27, that's also David's prayer and his thought as well. And, and he expands that thought a little bit more. It's not just when we approach death or when we face our mortality but it's also in the event of any trial or any hardship. Our prayer should be not just when we're facing death, nearer, my God, to thee, but even when we face a trial or a hardship, our heart cry should be nearer, my God, to thee. And that, of course, is David's point in Psalm 27. As he faces hardship, as he faces trial, his prayer is not necessarily deliver me, but his prayer is, Lord, let me be close to you even through this trial. And so as we look at that pas- this passage uh, today, that's what we're going to be looking at. So let's pick up in Psalm 27, and we'll read verses 1 through 3 together. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom should I fear? The Lord is the defense of my life. Whom should I dread? When evildoers came upon me to devour my flesh, my adversaries and my enemies, they stumbled and fell. If an army encamps against me, my heart will not fear. If war arises against me, in spite of this, I am confident. So this is a psalm of David. It's something that David composed and wrote. But we don't have a specific situation that he is necessarily describing at this point. We can't tell exactly what's going on that situates this within his life. But if you think about the life of David, it was a life that was filled with turmoil and trial, times where he was facing persecution and hardship, when his enemies desired to devour his flesh. We can think of many instances through his life where this was true. Perhaps the most famous is when Saul was pursuing him before he was king and trying to kill him so that he could remove that challenge to his throne. But even when he was king, his own son, Absalom, rose up and rebelled against him and sought to kill him. And that's just within the the own nation of Israel. That's not to mention all of the enemies that surrounded Israel, like the Philistines that sought to attack David and to destroy him. And so when we read about enemies arising and facing those who seek to kill you, David was no stranger to those kinds of situations. And so I think the things that he writes here could be applicable to any one of those times where he was facing an enemy. And so as we look at what he says in verse 1, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom should I fear? If you're like me, you're tempted to run immediately to what does it mean that the Lord is my light and my salvation? What is that picture that David is painting there? But I want us to pause before we even get to that point and look at what David does just stylistically first. The Lord is my light and salvation. In the face of a trial, in the face of an army coming against him, in, in the face of his life being threatened, where does David turn? His first look is to who his God is. The Lord is. That's the first thing that David looks at and the thing that he defines. Now, if you're like me, we're much more prone to define the 8,000-pound gorilla in the room that's terrifying us, Right? We're prone to define the the fears and the trials that are facing us. We're very good at defining the health crisis that we're facing and and understanding the fear that comes from that. Or we're very good at defining everything that this financial crisis spells for us and the fear that that instills in our heart, wondering how the Lord is going to provide. Or perhaps we're very good at defining the, the economic collapse that is facing this country and the direction that our nation is on. And so we're much more prone to define our problems, the trials that we're facing, and to describe them in intricate detail. But that's not where David turns first. In the face of a trial, in the face of persecution, the first place that David looks is to his God. The Lord is my light and salvation. And so I would invite you to adopt the same habit in your own life. When you feel anxious, when you feel concerned, when, when uncertainty grips your soul, rather than examining your circumstances and the fearful situation around you, I would urge you to look to your God, examine His character and His attributes, and understand who He is, and would His character be what gives you strength and security to walk through those uncertain and fearful times. And so, we do look at the characteristics that, that David uh, describes here. The Lord is my light and my salvation. The Lord is my light means the Lord is the one who guides, the one who leads, who provides direction to his path. And so, as we face uncertainty, the Lord is the one who shows us the way to go. But then, an even stronger term is the fact that the Lord is my salvation. And of course, we're prone to think about this in, in sort of gospel terms, that he saves us from sin. But in in David's context here, salvation just means the Lord is the one who gets me out of a pickle. When I get in a hard time, when, when things get tough, the Lord is the one who saves me. He is the one who is able to save me. And so if you look at this whole passage thus far, notice that the confidence for David as he faces a hard time, as he faces an enemy, his confidence does not come from his own strength. Not once does he say, I am sufficient to handle these things, or the Lord has made me strong to do this. His entire focus has been on the Lord is the one who can save me. The Lord is the strong one. And I've often thought about that in in my own life, that, that fear is a very reasonable thing if everything depends on me, right? Have you ever thought about it that way? Being anxious about the future or being afraid of what's going to happen is a very reasonable thing if I'm depending on my own strength. I am not smart enough or strong enough to figure out the problems that are coming toward me, the problems that face my family or this church or this nation, right? And so my hope has to be in something outside of my own strength and ability. My hope has to be in the Lord the Lord who is my light and my salvation. And so if that is true, if we can believe who God is, then what is the logical response? Well, just as it is completely logical to be terrified if everything depends on me, it is also completely logical and orthodox to not be afraid if everything depends on the Lord. Do you see that? If the Lord is the one who's in charge, if the Lord is the one who's in control and who reigns over this world, then I don't have to be afraid because I am trusting in His strength, His wisdom and knowledge, not my own. And so, like all sin, anxiety or fear as a sin is rooted in poor theology. When we indulge in fear or anxiety, we are indulging in poor theology We are believing something false about our God. If we believe the God of the Bible, if we believe Yahweh as He has been revealed, then the natural result and application in our lives should be exactly what David says. Therefore, who should I fear? This is who my God is. I do not need to be afraid. And so when we indulge in fear or anxiety, we are indulging in sin. We are choosing to believe something that is not true about our God. Now, all sin also is idolatry, and so anxiety is not different than any other sin in this way. But when we indulge in anxiety, we are worshiping another God. We are choosing to worship something other than God. And generally speaking, we are afraid of God taking something away from us. That's what causes us to be anxious. We are afraid of God choosing to remove something from my life that I have become very fond of, that I have become very attached to. Perhaps it's my health. Perhaps it's a certain type of financial lifestyle. Perhaps it's a job or or a family member. And I've become so anxious and so attached to that thing that the thought of it being removed causes me to be afraid. And at that moment, God has opened a door into your heart and showed you an idol. He has shown you something that you are worshiping other than God. And now I am afraid of this thing being taken rather than fearing God. And so the orthodox approach for believers, it's not foolish. You're not crazy to approach life and say, I don't need to be afraid. And the reason for that is because of the strength and the power of our God, not the strength of us or the wisdom of, of us, but because of who our God is. That's what gives us assurance and confidence as we go forward. So the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom do I need or I I don't need to be afraid? The Lord is my defense of my life. Whom should I dread? When evildoers come upon me to devour my flesh, my adversaries and my enemies, they stumbled and fell. If an army encamps against me, my heart will not fear. And if war arises against me in spite of this, I am confident. And so here we see a, a clearer shade of the, the foes that David is facing. And it's important that we don't brush over this with, with sort of a, a light-colored cloth. And sometimes it's, it's tempting to do that in poetry because David is speaking in a poetic way. But when he says, evildoers came upon me to devour my flesh, I think that's a pretty serious thing, Right? Okay, good. I'm seeing some head nods. All right, thank you. Wanted to check my Hebrew there. I'm glad everybody's clear on on the seriousness of that threat. Yes, that's a terrible threat. That's a terrifying situation, right? I'm not sure that I've ever been in a situation where I could say someone wants to devour my flesh, right? This is terrifying what David is facing. It's a terrifying situation. But I want you to notice one word in verse 2. And this separates us from the teaching of the prosperity gospel. Because up to this point, everything that I have said, um, a prosperity gospel preacher would say as well. But at this point is where we change direction from that that false teaching. Because notice what verse 2 says, when evildoers come upon me. When evildoers come upon me. That's an important assumption. It's not if, it's not maybe when they come upon me, it's when. David expects evildoers to come upon him. He expects persecution, suffering, and painful situations as he follows the Lord. And that list I gave at the beginning of David's life gives illustration to that. He was God's chosen king. He was a king after God's own heart. And yet, he experienced intense suffering and persecution within his life. Obedience to God does not exclude the presence of suffering and pain in the life of a believer. And so often for us, it's important that we adopt this attitude as well, because much of our problem with suffering comes from the fact that we expect no suffering in this life. We expect that we are entitled to no pain and no suffering in this life. And so as a result, when pain and suffering enters into our life, when persecution does come, then we become angry at God for introducing this pain and suffering that we do not deserve. And instead, I think we ought to adopt the same attitude that David has. When evildoers come, when suffering comes into our life, it's only a matter of time before you and I will face hardship and suffering in this life. And so rather than expecting to live a life free of pain and suffering, I think we should adopt the opposite. We should expect to have pain and suffering in this life. We should expect things not to work out for us, for there to be hardship and trial for us within this life. And as a result, it's important that we shape our thinking according to this passage before that hardship comes. So when evildoers come, not if. And so, with all of that as context, let's look at what David's request is of his God based on this truth. Look at verses 4 through 6 with me. One thing I have asked from the Lord that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in His temple. For on the day of trouble... He will conceal me in his tabernacle, and he will hide me in the secret place of his tent. He will lift me up on a rock, and now my head will be lifted up above my enemies around me. And I will offer sacrifices in his tent with shouts of joy. I will sing. Yes, I will sing praises to the Lord. So in verse 4, we see David's request. One thing I have asked. Now, this phrase, one thing, does not mean numerically one thing. If you read through the rest of the psalm, David has many requests that he's making of the Lord. And so, the one thing that he is asking of the Lord is not numerically one, but it's priority. His most important request is this one. In fact, it is so much more important that it it sets in its own category As the one thing that he needs above and beyond all the other things that he's going to ask for. And so, what is that one thing, the most important request, the greatest priority that David would need? It is that I would dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Now, remember, David is facing an enemy, he is facing an army, someone who wishes him dead. And this is his request. Now, may I'm, I know that I'm more fleshly than David, um, but if I were David in this situation, I think my request would be send a nuke on that guy, right? How about, a, how about some A-10 warthogs to, to blow up this army, right? I think that's a request. That would be coming from my mind, but that's not what David asks for. And, of course, David has a much better ask and request than I do in that situation. He asks to dwell in in the presence of the Lord. And the reason for that is because David understands the purpose of these trials. The reason that God allows trial, the reason that God guarantees that there will be trial, uncertainty, and difficulty in our life is because he knows that it's in trial that we need him the most. And so the solution to every trial, the solution to everything that we are walking through is always being closer to God. God's goal in every hardship and trial that we walk through is that we would draw closer to Him. And so anytime I meet with someone and we're talking about a hardship in their life, that is always the question I ask. How is this trial drawing you closer to the Lord? Because I guarantee whatever solution this trial has, That is God's purpose in having you in this difficult position. His goal is always your heart. He wants you to be closer to Him, and He has brought this trial into your life. He has brought this anxiety and this uncertain situation into your life so that you will draw closer to Him. So don't waste your trial. Don't waste your suffering. Whatever hardship you're going through, whatever you may be facing in this year, whatever the Lord might have for you, his purpose in it is so that you would draw closer to him. And so David is absolutely right with this passage. The the thing he needs is not salvation from his enemies. The thing that he needs is to be closer to his God. And so he understands God's purpose in that trial much better than, than I think we do as we approach those trials and those hardships. But let's look at this request. One thing I have asked, I think it's significant that David asks the Lord to dwell in his house. I don't think it's that the Lord would, would actually turn David away. I don't think that, that David wouldn't measure up in order to dwell in the, in the Lord's house. I think the Lord would have welcomed David with open arms. But I think it reveals the appropriate attitude by which we approach the Lord and we seek a relationship with Him, we are not entitled to a relationship with the God of the universe. It is an act of great mercy that God would deign to know us and to have a relationship with us. And so David's posture of asking to dwell in the house of the Lord shows humility in how he approaches the Lord. And I think that's something that we ought to model in our approach to the Lord as well as we seek to walk with Him. But the second thing to notice about this request is that David is asking to dwell in the house of the Lord. And this word for dwell means an eternal abiding. It's not just a momentary visit. It's not a a short time span, but he wants to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And I think that's important too, because many of us are prone to have a crisis relationship with the Lord, where when things get bad, we run to the Lord and we get his help. But as soon as things get better, we move on. And we sort of forget that we really need him until the next crisis comes and then we run to the Lord for help. But that's not what David is articulating here. His goal is not just to have the Lord's help for this short momentary span. His goal is to dwell with the Lord forever, to be with the Lord forever, not just get his help on this one thing, but to be there forever. But then the last thing I want us to talk about with this is what does it mean to dwell in the house of the Lord. The house of the Lord was the tabernacle. It was the representation of God's presence on earth with his people. It was the closest thing you had to knowing God. And so, as we think about this passage and, and how it applies in our lives, what, what we really should translate there is just, I want to know you better. Dwelling in God's house means I just want to know you. I want to understand you, Lord. I want to know you more and better. And so we don't have a tabernacle to go and and see God revealed, but we do have his word. And I would submit to you that's something that's far better than any tabernacle could produce. And so if if we are reading along with David here, and if, if our desire as we look forward to this new year is that we would know God better, there's no better way to do that to be in His Word. And so I would challenge you at the start of this new year, I'm not a big guy for New Year's resolutions unless it's a resolution to read God's Word. That's the only New Year's resolution that really matters. And so I don't care what New Year's resolutions you make, but I want you all to commit to know God better this year. And the primary way that you do that is through reading His Word. And so Whatever that looks like for you, whatever your quiet time has been this year, I want you to set a goal for yourself to know God better through His Word this year. Maybe that means starting a quiet time. It's not something you've ever done before. That's great. Just start doing it. If it's something you did for a while and you've fallen away from it, let's recover that discipline and do it again. And if it's something that you're already in the habit of doing, let's make it deeper and more personal and more meaningful than it's ever been before. To dwell in God's house means to know Him better, and the way that we know our God is through His Word. And so I would love for this place to be a church where we are known for people who know the Word. We are deep not just in our fellowship and our relationships, but we are deep in our personal study and knowledge of the Word. There's nothing that's going to change your walk with the Lord more than personally reading the Word for yourself every day. And so that's how we Can dwell in the house of the Lord. I don't want any of you moving in here this week, okay? I'm going to kick out the squatters if that happens. But I hope that what you take away from this request is to invest deeply in the Word of God. And so that's David's one request, to know his God better. But then as we look through verses 7 through 14, the second half, we see this echoed a second time. So let's pick up in verse 7. Hear, O Lord, when I cry with my voice and be gracious to me and answer me. When you said, seek my face, my heart said to you, I will seek your face, Lord. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger, for you have been my help. And do not abandon me nor forsake me, God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me up. Notice the repetition of those requests that go through there. Hear me when I cry. Be gracious to me. Answer me. Do not turn uh, turn me away. Do not hide your face from me. Do not abandon me. Do not forsake me. The repetition of those requests that God ha- that David has for his God. And they reveal something in the midst of that trial, don't they? What's David's greatest fear? What is he most worried about in this situation? It's not that his enemies would win. It's not that his enemies would triumph. It's that God would remove himself from his relationship with David. The greatest loss that David would feel would be losing that closeness with his God. And so we're seeing that that desire just repeated a different way. I want to know you. And as such, I'm going to request that you not leave me. I don't want to lose the relationship I have with you because this is the most valuable thing to me. And then he continues in verse 11 through the end on that same theme. Teach me your way, Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Do not turn me over to the desire of my enemies, for false witnesses have risen up against me, and the violent witness... And I certainly believe that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. So wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Yes, wait for the Lord. And so his final request is verse 11. Teach me your way, O Lord. Teach me your way. Another way to, to interpret that or to think about that would be, help me to walk according to your statutes. Help me to walk according to to your word. Help me to know how to live. Help me to know what to do. How am I supposed to live in this life? And so again, if we think about that in terms of the context, his request is not that the Lord would destroy his enemies. His request is that the Lord would show him how to live in the midst of it. In this trial and in this situation, Lord, give me the wisdom to know how I ought to live in the midst of this difficult and painful situation. As there's persecution and suffering all around me, give me the wisdom to walk according to your way. And then he concludes with these wonderful words in verse 14, which really tie us back into the beginning. He says, wait for the Lord. And that really means to rely on the Lord, to be dependent upon him. And then notice what it takes in order to wait on the Lord. If you're going to wait on the Lord, you're going to need strength and courage. Wait on the Lord, be strong, and let your heart take courage. And so as we approach a new year, a year in which we are seeking to wait on the Lord, to rely on Him for His wisdom, for His strength, and His guidance, what we are going to need as a church is strength and courage. We need strength and courage in order to rely on the Lord. And those things sound counterintuitive, right? I'm depending upon the Lord. I'm waiting for His strength. And yet what that produces in me is strength and courage in order to wait for Him. And so as we approach this new year, a year which could have uncertain and anxiety-inducing situations, my prayer is that we would be a church that would be filled with people who are strong and courageous people who are willing to wait and rely on the Lord for His strength and His provision. May that be true in my own life, and I pray that that's true for you as well. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this rich passage. Thank you for the truth that it shows us about your character and nature. And Father, I pray that you would help us as we face uncertain times and difficult situations. Father, may, may our first thought be to meditate upon who you are, to view your beauty um, in your house. Lord, I pray that your character and your nature would be what encourage us and strengthen us. Help us to not be foolish enough to find encouragement from our own strength or preparation or wisdom, but help us to find great comfort in knowing you and in trusting in your strength and ability to provide for us. Lord, free us from idolatry. Help us to not worship anything in this life or this world more than we worship you. And Lord, if that means taking away the things that we hold dear, we surrender that to you, also that we might know you better and seek to walk more closely with you. And so we do thank you for a new year, for the chance to walk closely with you. Help us to be faithful, and we pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen.